listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Titus. Here's Nate. Well, today we come in our studies to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus is a letter from Paul the Apostle to a young pastor named Titus who had a particular ministry to fulfill on the Mediterranean island of Crete. A really a theme concept from the book of Titus comes from chapter 2, verse 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, I know that's a long quotation to begin our study with, but the first line of it and the sum total of it, but also the final line of it put together, help us really understand the flow of the book of Titus. And it's simply this, when you smash them together, the grace of God has appeared, training us, amongst other things, to purify for Christ himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think a theme that you could look at from the book of Titus is simply that God's grace trains us to be zealous for good works in every compartment of life. And the urging of the pastor from Titus is going to simply be to have a people who are devoted to a life of good works. A simple outline then for the book of Titus follows like this. Chapter one, zealous for good works in the church. Chapter two, zealous for good works in the home, and chapter three, zealous for good works in the world. But notice that it is God's grace that trains us to be zealous for these good works. It isn't moralism. It isn't legalism. It isn't a desire to self-perfect. No, it's God's grace. In other words, we realize the great favor that is ours in Christ, the great position that is ours in Christ. And residing in that and stemming from that great position, we then learn that, okay, that's who I am. There is no good work that can get me any more of God's grace. I have it. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 1. It's all mine. I am completely in the kingdom. Therefore, because of what God has done for me, I want to respond with a life that is zealous for good works. And I've found that it's really only the grace of God that can produce that zeal for good works. Uh, Legalism can produce a slight desire for good works, which really usually aren't actually good works, but a zeal for good works comes when a person is released by the love of God and they begin to understand the grace of Christ uh, toward them. Paul begins his letter in verse 1 very simply, and so this first chapter is zealous for good works, 
in the church. So he begins his letter uh, like he begins all of his letters by naming himself and then giving a few unique details about himself and here in Titus, a little bit of doctrine. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul quickly mashes together two roles that at first glance seem to be contradictory, but actually flow quite well together. He calls himself a servant or a slave of God and an apostle, which is a high and significant, and if you could say it this way, an authoritative role. And he mentions them really in the same breath. I am both. I am enslaved to God, yet have great significance in his kingdom. I have been brought low by the gospel, but God has lifted me up in his kingdom and church. I have acted humbly and humbly want to serve the Lord, but he has granted into my hands great authority. And this, of course, is the flow of the New Testament. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, we learn in James chapter 4. Now, he says to them, for the sake, so now we know the reason that Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here he describes it, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now this is powerful because what you're seeing here is that Paul is saying that my whole life My whole reason for being a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, the whole thing that I'm devoted to, is to the faith of God's people and their knowledge of the truth. In other words, what Paul wanted to awaken in people who didn't know the Lord was faith and knowledge, but also what he wanted to cultivate in the lives of people who were already believers was faith and knowledge. Now, this faith and knowledge, according to Paul, accords with godliness. In other words, it produces this faith and this truth. It produces a godliness with us, a desire to be set apart, a desire to behave as God would behave rather than as the world would behave. Now, right there in the first verse, Paul is getting to the real theme of this book. He's going to urge Titus to urge the citizens of the church on Crete to be a people who are zealous for good works. Here he says it, it accords with godliness. He's hinting at what is to come. If you teach them, Titus, if you develop their faith, then godliness will flow from their lives. Now in verse two, concerning that godliness, he says, it is in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Paul here is saying very simply that a truly godly life, a life that accords with godliness, a truly godly life has an expectation of eternal life. And really, the more a person sets their mind upon their eternal life, the more godly they will likely want to become 
in this life. As John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and following, he says, yes, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, you know, in heaven. But we know that when he appears, when the Lord appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, in the return of Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. So when you consider where you're going and you consider your eternal life, the Apostle John tells us there is a tendency or a desire to purify yourself like the Lord. Now, all of this is beautiful in the way that Paul is saying it, because you notice here that he's basically telling us that the grace of God toward us as the children of God extends into eternity future. But there's also an element here which helps us understand that the grace of God has been extended to to us from eternity past, eternity past. Notice that he says here, God who never lies promised this grace before the ages began. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that we have been saved and called to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, the purpose and grace of God, which he gave us. So what did he give us? A purpose and grace. He gave it to us in Christ Jesus, that makes sense, before the ages began. So it's helpful to the believer to understand that the beautiful position of grace, the beautiful position that we have before God is secure, so secure that you would say it extends into eternity future, but also has extended into eternity past. And the reason for that, of course, that we have God's grace now, but also in both directions as far as the eye can see, the reason for that, of course, is because Jesus's position is ours. And his position has been and will be forever, of course, as the Son of God, secure in the sight of God. Now, this kind of acceptance, this kind of embrace from God, this kind of favor and adoption and full immersion into his kingdom from God ought to set a believer's heart on fire. Notice also there in his introductory comment, Paul says that this word was is manifested through the preaching. The beautiful plan of God has been committed to the mouths of men, and specifically here, the mouth of this apostle. So those are Paul's introductory comments. Like I've mentioned, he is alluding to things to come, but here he gives us just sort of the beginning thoughts of his epistle. He says to Titus, verse 4, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, Titus is an interesting man in the New Testament, partly because he isn't found in the book of Acts, but is mentioned 13 times in Paul's letters. The phrase, my true child in a common faith, helps us think that it's likely that he came to Christ through Paul's preaching. 
We learn in Galatians chapter 2 that he was a Gentile man. Now, Titus, actually, as you look at the different scriptures concerning his life, had a difficult ministry. The first time that you see him comes in Galatians chapter 2, where he's embroiled and thrown right into the midst of a controversy in Jerusalem over circumcision. Do new Gentile believers need to be circumcised or not? And of course, the church eventually decided rightly on the side of liberty and freedom rather than on the side of addition to the gospel and legalism. And Titus, when he went to Jerusalem with Paul in Galatians 2, was not compelled or forced to be circumcised. Paul also had sent Titus, we know from 2 Corinthians, to Corinth to conduct a difficult ministry. The two things that I think were difficult about it is that he had to, number one, deliver a rebuke from Paul the Apostle, but also as well, he had to collect a financial offering from the people. I think both of those can be sticky things, rebuke and finances. Also, 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 tells us that eventually Paul sent him to Dalmatia, which is modern-day Bosnia, and church tradition tells us that after he had finished his time in Dalmatia, he came back to Crete, and that's where he is right now in this letter, but that in the future he came back to, to Crete and he ministered there for the rest of his life. And Cretans were hard, disorganized uh, people who had embraced some bad doctrines. Paul tells Titus in verse 5, The reason for writing when he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So here we have the mission of the letter. Paul was telling Titus to stay there on Crete, this small island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Mediterranean, a, a people group who had a bad reputation in New Testament times. Some people would even say that to play the Cretan meant to be a liar. They were famous for their drunkenness and general immorality on that island, sort of a party town kind of place. And Paul here tells Titus, I've put you there so that you might organize the church and appoint elders or pastors in every town as I directed you. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the theme of this book is that God's grace trains us to be a people who are zealous for good's work, good works. And God's grace had clearly trained Titus, don't you think? Looking at the history of his life, looking at the history of his ministry, it seems very clear that this man, Titus, was willing to go to difficult places, and he was willing to minister to difficult people like the Cretans, like the Corinthians. Titus embraced the hardship. He embraced the difficulty. And it is God's grace that propels us to hard places with hard people from time to time. Jesus, of course, incarnated, came to a hard place, planet Earth, with hard 
people, human beings. And we follow our Lord in going to hard places with hard people. Now, I think that there's a tricky element to this because there is an asceticism or a pharisaical legalism that can do a similar thing, sacrifice, give up money, give up comforts to go to hard places and to do hard things, but it either won't endure or it will be done for the wrong motivation, for people to see you, to rejoice over you, to say, my, my, that's so impressive what you've committed yourself to. But the gospel, God's grace, propels us privately, quietly to go to hard places with hard people. Now, this might be an application in your life, in the place that God has called you to, or a mission that God is putting you on, but it can also just come right to your doorstep. Family members, co-workers, friends, situations that are just hard, just difficult. I've talked to so many people over the years who, when they go to work, it's a hostile environment. God's grace can send you there in great strength and power and might. Titus here is sent by God to be zealous for good works by the grace of God on the island of Crete. Now, because his primary responsibility was the organization of the church, and part of the organization of the church would be the appointing of elders or pastors in the various towns on the island of Crete, Paul gives Titus a list whereby he can vet potential pastoral candidates. The first line of it found in verse six, if anyone is above reproach. Now, above reproach simply means to be uh, someone who is not marred by disgrace, a man of good character publicly and privately. It, of course, doesn't mean a perfect man because a perfect man does not exist. So Paul says, look, in general, he must be a man of good character publicly and privately. Paul then first talks about or deals with the home of this man and then deals with the specifics of this man's character. Concerning the home, he says, the husband of one wife. Now, that's an interesting phrase that many people have tried to figure out the exact interpretation of. Obviously, Paul is attempting to exclude someone here. There's someone that when being interviewed by Titus, who says, I'd like to be considered for the pastorate, I'd like to be trained, I'd like to you know, be seen or, or operate as an elder, there is someone who, when their life goes through the husband of one wife test, there are some who will fail that test. The question, of course, is who? Now, I, there are lots of views on this, and I'll mention a few of them. I don't think that he's saying if they've never married, they cannot be considered for the pastorate. I don't think that marriage is a requirement of the pastorate. Obviously, there are some segments of Christianity uh, or public Christendom who forbid pastors or priests to be married. Uh, but here, some would say, no, they must be married. But Jesus wasn't married. 
And Jesus and Paul both taught that singleness is an actual biblical calling for some people. So I don't think that's what he's referring to. I don't think he's referring to polygamists, although this would apply to them and cover them. I don't think that was the big problem that needed to be dealt with. Make sure that they're only married to one woman at a time. And I personally don't think that he's saying never let anyone who's been divorced or remarried serve as a pastor. Now, I take that one very cautiously because there are those who have been divorced or remarried in a very unbiblical kind of way who really shouldn't be considered for the pastorate for they have taken the word of God very lightly. But there are biblical divorces, there are biblical remarriages, and there are also unbiblical yet before conversion, divorces and remarriages. In other words, if there's a pastoral candidate who, yes, had been divorced unbiblically and remarried unbiblically before he was a Christian, is he not allowed after his conversion and making things right with God and man, is he not allowed to be considered for the pastorate when another brother in Christ who before he became a Christian was a murderer? is allowed to be considered, I I don't know that it carries logic all the way through. I think that what Paul is specifically referring to is, Titus, as you're vetting these guys, make sure that they are not guilty of marital unfaithfulness. These are candidates, after all. They got to be godly, dedicated men to their wives. Then he also says concerning the home that their children must be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this is also a tricky concept when it comes to the pastoral home and the requirement here, because oftentimes that word for children refers to early childhood. However, It's hard to imagine early childhood being a place that debauchery or insubordination would actually ever really truly fit. The bottom line here means, it seems to me, he's an involved father and his house is not out of control. Now, neither of these things were norms in that culture. And more and more in the culture I'm living in, at least, they are no longer norms as well. But God's grace can make us a people who are zealous for good works, even in the realm of the family. God's grace can redeem the family. And God's grace can produce men who truly care for their families. So Paul begins to outline that and say, look, these guys, they're going to be examples to the rest of the church. They need to show the church how to be married and how to take care of their families. So they've got to be good husbands. They've got to be good fathers. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now, interestingly here, Paul had first called them elders. Now he calls them overseers. Uh, The word elder is the word presbyteros, and that's the position. Episcopos here, overseer, is the role, that of seeing over the church. Some translations say bishops. And then also there's a third title, pastors, that uh, Paul, or excuse me, Peter uses. And in the New Testament, these titles are used interchangeably, pastors 
elders, bishops. They are one in the same, it seems, in the New Testament economy. And so Paul says, look, these men, they must be above reproach. He must not be, and then he lists some things he cannot be. Quick-tempered, he can't be angry. He's got to be a humble man. He can't be a drunkard. No, he has to be moderate and understand how to handle any liberties that he might feel or have in moderation. He can't be a drunkard, can't be given to drunkenness. He can't be violent. He can't be greedy for gain and uh, or arrogant. So uh, he, mu- he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But he should be, verse 8, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And when you really think about it, it is the grace of God that can turn a man into these things. Jesus wants to transform us by his spirit. He wants to turn men into men who are humble and long-suffering and moderate and peaceful and content and welcoming and healthy and righteous and disciplined. God's grace teaches us to say no to our passions and to say yes to holiness and Jesus. So God's grace can turn a man into this. And Timothy, or excuse me, Titus was to look for men who fit the bill. Now, additionally, not only that, he must also, verse 9, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he says here, you know, the pastor, he's got to be able to have two tongues. He, he has to speak, you know, words that build up and teach and instruct and sound doctrine, but he has to also be able to rebuke those who contradict that sound doctrine inside the body of Christ. Now, the reason that he has to have that dual ministry, which I think in this day and age is so important, is listed for us in verse 10 and following. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, it appears here that the Cretan church had been attacked by dead religion, legalists perhaps, in the form of those in the circumcision party who had come along and said, yeah, the gospel's great, but you also need to add something, and we want to talk to you about circumcision. God's grace, however, combats religious legalism, don't you think? There's always a feeling or a tendency to add something to the simple message of the gospel. Gospel plus political affiliation. Gospel plus environmentalism. Gospel plus homeschooling. Gospel plus a mysterious line of teaching. Gospel plus, uh, you know, serve your church so much that you become unhealthy and completely out of balance. And uh, so here Paul is saying, no, the pastor needs to rise up and correct it. Now, also, there's another side of things listed in verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony, Paul said, is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, Paul quotes from a poet or who they what they consider to be a prophet, not a biblical prophet, from the 6th century BC named Epimenides. And he says, in quoting him, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Then Paul says, that's true. Now, that's a little uncomfortable for us because at first glance, we wonder, is Paul accepting it like this ethnic stereotype? Now, Paul knew that some Cretans were believers, and that meant that he knew that some weren't liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. He, after all, is sending Titus into Crete to look for good men to pastor these churches. The assumption is that he'll find some. So, apparently, however, some inside the church were beginning to fit this negative stereotype and uh, there on the island of Crete, and Paul wants that to be rebuked. God's grace will combat this kind of license that exists in life where people just want to do what they want. And here they lied. They, and they were evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul says, look, pastor, you go out and you speak into that reality and you correct that laziness. You correct that license that's there. To the pure, he says in verse 15, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, we've all seen this played out, haven't we? Those whose minds are defiled, nothing is pure to them. Every single thing that they come across, there's a perversion of the things that they come across in life. But Paul says to the pure, all things are pure. In other words, purity comes from within. Jesus taught that the heart must experience trans- transformation, that it's from the heart of man that evil thoughts and sexual immorality and the like come from. And things external cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh, Colossians 2 verse 23 But God's grace invades the inner man, making him so pure internally as he begins to realize who he is positionally, that he wants Christ to bring out of him experientially those internal realities in his life. And he no longer wants to live an unholy life, but a holy and righteous life. And everything that he comes across becomes more pure as a result of his presence in that environment. And so Paul here gives us the desire to be zealous for good works in the realm of the body of Christ. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.